As a church family, we have been processing through the Gospel of Mark this summer. And I will tell you, I'm going to be picking up the Gospel Mark again periodically throughout the year. But suffice it to say that um, we've been moving quite slowly through the Gospel of Mark. Mark's an amazing Gospel because it is the shortest. Not only is it the shortest, it's really the Reader's Digest version of faith. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, and this sermon series has been entitled Faith for the Real World, Faith for the Real World. One of the reasons why the Gospel of Mark is so good for this title and this challenge is because we know when John Mark, who was an understudy or a disciple of the Apostle Peter, when he wrote his gospel, by the time Mark was written, the church was under severe persecution. And so again, the gospel of Mark was written to that type of person. And so it's very basic. It has the rudimentary things of what it looks like to follow Jesus and serve others. I think it's very important for me to always articulate this as well, especially as we go through studying one of the Gospels or one of the books of the Bible, and that is, we are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church. Biblically-based means that we believe that the Scriptures speak to us about our relationship with God as well as our relationship with others. We also say that we are relationally driven. Jesus teaches that relationship is the most important thing of life, the most important thing. Again, our relationship with God and our relationships with people. And then last, we are a spirit-led church, which means that Jesus taught and we believe that the Holy Spirit was sent in order to empower us and to dwell within us so that we can walk out what we learn in Scripture as well as the relationships God calls us to live in. This morning's reading, in just a few moments, you'll read it with me up on the large screen, is taken from Mark 7. But before we get there, I always like to give sort of the backdrop, the cultural context, and this morning I'm going to talk briefly about the emotional context of what we're getting ready to read. When it comes to the emotional context, this morning's sermon is entitled, Faith for the Real World, Clean, Clean. What I can tell you is, is emotionally as we move towards this text, you will discover that as we get there, it's about people who are dirty. They're not clean physically. Just this past week, um, or actually just a little over a week ago, I, I'm involved with the wrestling team at the University of Virginia, so... I underpaid a couple wrestlers to come to my house and help me work around the yard. And when we were done, I said, well, would you like to come into the house to eat? My wife had dinner, and they looked at each other and looked at me and said, we're too dirty to go in your house. We'd been digging and mulch and all that other stuff. And so they looked at each other and said, you know, we're just too dirty to go inside. And I said, ah, my wife won't care, and little arm twisting. And they came in and ate everything we had. But isn't it amazing that emotionally we think of ourselves and if we're not clean enough to be in a certain context, it affects us. The other emotional art to the story is this, is that what we're getting ready to read, we're going to read about some religious leaders that come to meet with Jesus and they totally miss him. 
totally. Stunning. Totally miss him. But you know, in the world in which we live, there are people that have missed great opportunities. Some that I've heard about ever since I was young. One of the great opportunities that was missed was there was a record company in England called Decca Records. And they told the Beatles they were not good enough to be on their label. Think they ever regretted that? They missed an opportunity. Another famous missed opportunity supposedly was a basketball coach by the name of Coach Herring. He is infamous for having cut Michael, J- or Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, <laughs> from his basketball team in high school. Sent him down to the JVs. There's another story that I've heard about. I'm assuming it's urban legend, but it's the story of someone who bought some stock in a company and they sold that stock to buy a lawnmower and then the stock just took off and they calculated on a continual basis what that lawnmower was really worth every time they mowed their lawn. Missed opportunities. You know, that's the emotional context as we step into where we're getting ready to read. And much like the guy, every time he mowed his lawn, how he must have felt. I think the gospel writer Mark wants us to feel that same missed opportunity as we read how the religious leaders dealt with Jesus. So we're going to read it together in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. For those of you who have never read the Newer Testament, there are two groups of people just briefly, culturally to be aware of, other than Jesus and his disciples, which are more obvious. And that is these two groups are called Pharisees and teachers of the law. There are two primary religious leaders during the time of Jesus. There are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees have control of the Temple Mount. And so the Pharisees then have fanned out into outside of Jerusalem to the villages where all the Jewish people live. And they're the ones that are making sure people live by the legal codes of the Jewish faith. We're going to get to that in a moment. But let's pick up our reading in Mark 7, verse 1 through 23. I know it's a long passage, but please give it full attention as we read. Here's what the scriptures tell us. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. By the way, that's a 70-mile walk. They have come 70 miles to see Jesus. It's well over three to four days of walking. They have come from Jerusalem and they gathered around Jesus, verse 2, and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they came, come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why do your disciples live? Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, 
These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer have to do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other things like that. I preached on this exact text a few weeks ago, at least I referenced it. What I talked about at that time was how the religious leaders, in order to have people give them money after they died, would go to people and say, look, if you take all of your money and you dedicate it to God and your parents get old and need help, you don't have to help them. Save that money, you live on it, and when you die, just give it to the, to the treasury. It's called Corbin, dedicated to God. Verse 14, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciple asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. By the way, the word dull means dull. Let's go on. And he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Just so you know, in the Jewish world, there were not only cleanliness codes, but foods you could and could not eat. In that moment, Jesus declares all of those foods are clean. Reading on verse 20, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Faith for the real world clean. When we look at this text, remember again the emotional arc that I wanted us to have. You had the record label that pushed the Beatles to the side. You had Coach Herring who cut Michael Jordan. You had a guy who buys a lawnmower with the stock he should have kept. Missed opportunities. But you see, in chapter 7, verse 1, it tells us that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have done a 70-mile walk to come and see Jesus. And it says they gathered around him. They surrounded he and his disciples. Doesn't tell us how many there were, but there was a good crowd of them, obviously. Why did they come to check him out? Well, Jesus has got a huge following by now. Mark chapter 1 through 6 tells us this, that Jesus is doing miracles, his popularity is spreading, and oh, by the way, this is the third entourage that has come from Jerusalem to check on him. 
each one becomes more severe in their criticism of Jesus. It says in chapter 7, verse 1, they gathered around him. You know what's fascinating? Is if you look in the gospel of Mark up until this point, when a group of people met Jesus up until this point, they responded very differently than that. Mark chapter 6, verses 54 through 55 tells us that when Jesus crosses the lake, he gets out of the boat, and when he does, it says everyone ran throughout the entire region and carried sick people on their mats to come to Jesus, and they rushed him. It's interesting to note that the apostle Peter, when he met Jesus, was in the boat from which he was fishing. Jesus provides a miraculous catch of fish, and when Peter is in the boat and he sees the catch, the apostle Peter falls on his face before Jesus, and he says this, get away from me, I am a sinful man. And Jesus looks at him and says, you come and follow me. Peter, the apostle Peter, was John Mark's mentor, the one that wrote this gospel. Two weeks ago, I preached a message about the woman with the issue of blood. The Bible tells us that she pushes through the crowd and she touches Jesus and instantly she's healed. And when Jesus turns to look at her, she falls on her face on the ground before him and she confesses all truth about her life. But you see, the religious leaders show up from Jerusalem. They gather around Jesus and they show none of that attitude towards him. Now, I have a question. If you had walked from Richmond to Charlottesville, that's how far it is, from Richmond to Charlottesville, and you'd walked for three or four days, and you had an opportunity to sit down with Jesus at Bodo's, what question would you want to ask him? What would you be looking for? Listen, these guys made a 70-mile walk. And you know what they came up with? Your disciples don't wash their hands. You know, it, it is humorous, but it's almost heartbreaking, isn't it? that they have the opportunity to sit at Bodo's with Jesus and his 12 disciples, and all they can take away is we noticed that your disciples came through the door, did not go to the men's room, and washed their hands. That's all they get. It's fascinating. Now, here are a couple quick thoughts. These are important. That if you are a person that's checking out Jesus... Don't become discouraged by those of us that follow him. I want you to notice, they don't even really look at Jesus. They look at his followers. They look at the disciples. And they begin to ask Jesus about his disciples instead of Jesus about himself. It's shocking to me. And oftentimes when I meet people and begin to talk to them about faith, they will recount a story of someone who is a follower of Jesus who did them wrong. 
And what I want to say is, please see through that everyone sitting here that follows Jesus and serve others is a broken vessel in which the purity of Christ dwells. We're all broken people. Now, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that doesn't give us an excuse to live however we want. It's not how that works. We're called to live like him. But again, what is stunning to me is that these men sit with Jesus and they focus on his followers instead of him. And what they notice is they don't wash their hands. Now, why was this a big deal for the Pharisees? Well, in some ways, it's kind of simple and it's understandable, and here's why. As I mentioned earlier, the Sadducees have control of the temple, so the Pharisees have moved out into the communities outside Jerusalem. They're setting up what's called synagogues. They're having these little local churches, and the Pharisees are itinerants that go around, and as they meet Jewish people, they make sure that all Jewish people live by the commands of God because they believe that what the laws are for the priests in the temple, and if everyone were to live by those, then maybe God's spirit would inhabit the whole nation. Because you see, to serve in the temple and to enter into the temple, there were certain cleansings that you had to do, and especially for the priests. Do you know before the high priest would go in once a year into the holy of holies of God, he would live in total seclusion for a week. He wouldn't touch anyone or touch anything. He did everything to make sure that he was unclean. And then he would dress in perfect white linens and he would walk into the presence of God to offer sacrifices for the people. And the only way that cleanliness could really happen is if he was sequestered away from all other people. That's how it worked. Not only this, there were a lot of other things he had to do to get ready because if he entered into God's presence and he wasn't 100% right with the laws of God, he would become what the Bible calls a crispy critter. He would be struck down in God's presence. So the Pharisees take these laws that are really for the priesthood and they begin to impose them on all of the people. But I want you to notice in the text Jesus announces to these religious leaders that he says to them, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. I want you to know this, that they have taken God's commands and they're now beginning to apply them to people in ways God has never intended. And they're doing it out of a sense of holiness and wanting to be clean before God and getting everyone else clean, but Jesus picks it all apart, and he says, listen, what you're doing is actually now about human tradition. It has ceased to be the command of God. And again, those commands of God were important because if you're going to go meet with God in his holiness and in fear and trembling, you must be right. You must be clean in the Older Testament. It would be similar to this. How many of you sitting here If I said to you in this moment that the Queen of England was now knocking on your front door and she would be sitting on your couch when you get to your house, how many of you would be absolutely mortified? Raise your hand. (laughs) Some of you men or women, this is your greatest fear. 
The house is a disaster. You would walk in and the queen is sitting on your couch and it would just cause a fight between couples all the way home. Why didn't you clean up? You know, it's interesting about the queen. They often say about her, everywhere she goes smells like paint. (laughs) Because everyone's painting for her arrival. Why? When royalty shows up, you want to be, look, the Older Testament commands of God were about God as king, and when he arrives, be ready. But they have gone way past this. As a matter of fact, the first time humankind ever sins, this happens. You see, God shows up to Adam and Eve and looks at Adam and Eve and says to Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Martin Luther, that ancient, brilliant theologian, tells us that Eve looks at that command that says, do not eat. And when she responds to Satan's accusation about God, she says this, Genesis 3, 3. Instead of just saying, God said, we must not eat, she adds this, and you must not touch it. You see, she's trying to add a human barrier, and she thinks it's moving her towards holiness, but it doesn't. That's a human tradition. It's not biblical. Now, as we look at this text, what we discover is is that Jesus is quite harsh with the Pharisees. As a matter of fact, almost always when Jesus gets harsh, it's with religious leaders who are making it more complicated for people to find God than less complicated. You will notice that he calls them hypocrites multiple times. That word hypocrite in the ancient world is an acting term. It's about one actor who goes on the stage and plays multiple parts, normally by putting a different mask on or holding a mask in front of their face, and one actor or actress could play multiple parts. That's what is called a hypocrite. Someone that in our culture we would call two-faced that they act a certain way in front of a certain group and then act another way in front of another group. If you think this is harsh, how Jesus calls them hypocrites in the book of Mark, listen to how he talks to them in the book of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 23 through 28. I just want to read it quickly for us. Here's what Jesus says. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. That's a joke, by the way, in the ancient world. Then reading on, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. And in the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now Jesus also confronts the disciples. And he says to them, are you so dull 
Don't you see that nothing enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into the heart, but into the stomach and then out of the body. Jesus begins to work off of this concept of outside cleanliness and inside cleanliness. And what's amazing is, is this this interaction with the Pharisees, Jesus never says that people are not defiled. As a matter of fact, in Mark 7, 23, Jesus says this, all these evils come from inside and defile a person. It's what's inside that makes us unclean. Jesus never says we're not. When we look at what Jesus says in 723, I know in our modern, sophisticated world, a lot of people step back from this verse and they go, wait a second, what did he just say? He said this, all these evils come from inside and defile the person. He calls it evil. Well, I live in a world where we're taught that people are basically good and end up doing a few bad things. That's not the Bible. The Bible declares that evil is real and that evil things do come out of people. I remember one time I met, when I was at Princeton, I met with a very famous man. He happened to be the neighbor of me and Fran and my son when he was first born. His name was Dr. Kurt Weitzman. He had escaped from Berlin with Einstein to come to Princeton University, and they both worked at the Institute of Advanced Studies. He was my neighbor, so we would go eat together. He was this old German guy. He was a great guy. Never got his driver's license, never had any children. It was just he and his wife. By the way, she was the first woman professor at Rutgers University. We live next door to them. And so we went to lunch one day, and after a period of time of getting to know him, I asked him questions about Nazi Germany. And all he said to me was this. I want you to listen to what he said. He said, we were the most educated and modernized people in the world. And look at the evil that we did. I live in a world that teaches me that education will make the difference, that modernization will make the difference. And I sat with a man who was a supreme intellectual, and he said that, and I want to repeat it again. He said, we were the most educated and modernized people in the world, and look at the evil we did. Shocking. You see, Jesus shows up and he says, yes, it is true that there is evil inside. But you see, I live in a world where people assuage themselves and they do it by comparing themselves to others. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm not as bad as she is. Therefore, I'm okay. Well, what I can tell you is for every 50 people you can find that you are better than, I will introduce you to 50 people that you are worse than. Doesn't work. I've had people say to me, look, Pete, I'm not as bad as Hitler. It's funny 
that that reference goes back to the evil that Dr. Kurt Weitzman was speaking about. But then I'll say to them, but you're not Mother Teresa either. Somehow you're stuck in the middle. Now listen, Jesus shows up and when it comes to faith in the real world, Jesus shows up and says, no, the problem is inside. It's not from without, it's from within. And how many times have we watched on television where you're watching a movie and the killer goes into the shower and they're removing the evidence in the shower, but the shower you know means so much more than that. They're not just trying to remove the evidence, they're trying to wash away the guilt. And it never works. Never. As a matter of fact, we understand clearly, and maybe you've experienced what I have in my own life, and it's this. The very thing that makes us defiled, we go back to, to try to make us feel better about being defiled. The very thing that fills me with guilt and shame is the thing that I go back to again because I feel guilt and shame. And what Jesus talks about, and I know that he's right, is that evil is from within. That's what defiles us. Now listen, if outside and washing of hands would have made his disciples clean, there was no reason for Jesus at all. But what you will discover in the Gospel of Mark is that the next study or the next story, the one right after this one, and I'm not going to preach on it, I just want to reference it, is that Jesus sits there with these religious leaders and they look at him and say, your disciples are unclean, they should have washed their hands. The next story is about a Gentile woman, she's not even Jewish, and she has a daughter that is demon-possessed. And she comes to Jesus, Mark 7, 25, and she falls on her face in front of him and begs him, the gospel says, begs him to deliver her daughter from a demon. My question to you is, how much would hand-washing have helped her? None. And yet... When you look at the religious leaders, they're focused on hand-washing and Jesus is focused on life transformation from the inside out. What she needs is Jesus. And she goes to him and literally goes prostrate before him. She opens up her life to him and she looks to him and she cries out to him. What's stunning about this story is Jesus doesn't even go lay hands on the child. He prays right where he is, and she, that little girl is instantly delivered from the demon. Well, this is faith for the real world. And how do we put feet to our faith with this? How does this work? How do we move forward? Well, what's neat about the Bible is that not only do we get the Gospels, but we get the letters after the Gospels that show us how people handled the Gospels and the message of Jesus. The idea of being clean is no different. And we find that the Apostle Paul writes for us 
how we practically put feet to our faith in this area. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 and 8 through 9. I want to read them out loud to us. And I would really strongly encourage you to commit the last two verses to memory. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes about being clean, about sin, about the inside problem. He writes this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. That's transformation inside. Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, this is the one that I pray all of us would understand and memorize. For it is by grace you have been saved. There's that word again, saved. Through faith, this is not from yourself. It's not from within you. You are saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. What do we need? What do we need if you're sitting here and you know inside there's evil? You know it. You know it. Hand washing won't help you. Taking a shower won't help you. What will help you is coming to Jesus. And out of these two passages that we just read, there are three words I want to focus on. The first one is faith. The second one is grace. And the last one is saved. The first one is faith. Everyone has faith in something. Everyone. Could be in a career, finances, education, who likes you, who doesn't. Whatever it is, everyone has faith in something. Something they put their trust in. These two passages teach us that we are saved by grace through faith. That if you and I put our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus, if we do that, then we are, what he says next, is saved. But the bridge between faith and saved is this incredible word, and it's grace. Grace literally means gift. It's what it means. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. You cannot work hard enough to get it. All you can do is receive it. That's it. And so if you've been working really hard to try to be right with God, you missed it. You can never work hard enough. The Pharisees had that cat in the bag and it didn't work. What we do is we bring ourselves to Jesus and we put our faith in him. And as we do that, we open up And we accept the grace that he gives. It's what he's done for us, not what we can do to be right. He gives it to us as a gift. And then we are saved. What does saved mean? Literally means you're saved from yourself. You can't do it to you. Someone has to do it for you. As Paul said, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. You're dead. Dead people can't help themselves. They need someone to show up and to give them life. And in Jesus, there's life. And there's transformation and rescue 
from the evil that's within. Because when you say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit now dwells in you. He dwells in you. And as a Spirit-led church, we talk always about how the Christian life is lived by the power of the Spirit. Would you please stand with me? Can we take a moment and close our eyes and open up our hearts? Jesus said, it's what's in us, the evil within us that defiles us. It's not the stuff from the outside. It's what's inside. And as you're here this morning, some of us I know, men and women alike, have begun to sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Deep conviction. You know that you need help. Comparison has not worked. Changing your moral standard has not worked. It's still there. And the Bible says we need to be saved. Literally saved from ourselves, the evil that's in us. If you are here this morning and you sense that the Holy Spirit is knocking on your heart and Jesus is reaching out to you personally, I want to challenge you, beg you, encourage you in this moment during the present working of the Holy Spirit would you please open up your heart to Jesus would you put your faith in him he never sinned lived a perfect life yet loved you enough to die for you he took the penalty of your sin on himself on the cross would you accept that as a gift a grace that is given to you. If you know you need to do that, I'm going to lead you in a brief prayer. And the prayer goes something like this, Dear Jesus, I don't know everything I need. there is to know about who you are, but I come just as I am in this moment. Jesus, there's evil in me. And I can't get rid of it. Would you please forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you make me clean? Would you save me from myself? Would you please give me the gift of salvation through faith and what you've done for me? Jesus, now I thank you for forgiving me, cleansing me, freeing me up from myself. Now, Jesus, please put your Holy Spirit in me that I would be able to follow you and serve others for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, in Christ's name.